Do be seated. It's time to listen to God now. Andy Young's going to read from the Bible, and then Tim will be preaching for us. The reading this morning is Romans chapter 13, verses 1 to 14. This can be found on page 1140 in the Red Bibles. Um, We have Bibles in other languages and versions available at the back, and page numbers for those are on the screen. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other command there may be, are summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber, because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Andy, thank you very much. It will be very helpful to keep that passage open in front of you. Uh, It used to be said that the two topics you should avoid in polite company are religion and politics. How I've wound up preaching Romans 13, I'm not quite sure, but there we are, I have. Uh, And the reason why it used to be said that you should avoid those sorts of topics in polite company is they are hot topics. 
passions rise when they are being discussed. And I'm very aware of that this morning as I stand before you, and I'm very aware that I might say something occasionally uh, clumsy or inconsiderate. If I do, please forgive me. Do point it out to me afterwards. It's the only way I'll learn. But my job today isn't actually to talk to you about politics or government or anything like that. It's to try and explain what this passage is teaching us as a church and how as a church we relate to those who've been put in authority, uh, government, uh, politics over us. Um, And there is no hotter topic. There is no hotter topic in in general throughout church history. There have been so many people who've written on this topic. Going back to the 5th century, the great St. Augustine wrote his masterwork, City of God, and he spends a lot of time there talking about how the church and the state should relate to one another. It has been a topic down the centuries. It's still a hot topic today, isn't it? Even in our our news recently, uh, we were thinking about how one faith community in Birmingham uh, issued a protest over what what was taught in state schools. Uh, Not just uh, schools protests, but in recent years in the news, we've seen that it affects uh, bread and and breakfast owners, bakers, teachers, nurses, uh, lots of different people, lots of different stories. And again, I'm not here to talk to you about the rights and wrongs of any of those particular cases. I'm just using them as examples to point out this is a hot topic. This is something we're going to come across in the news. This is going to be something that many of us are going to face personally in our own lives. And as a church, we may well end up facing. How is it as a church community and as Christians, we should live in relation uh, to the state? And I'm also very aware that I say this in a political climate that is divided, often bitter, often hostile. And in a room this size, I guess we have any number of differing opinions on various issues and matters and concerns. So how is it that the church is going to be salt and light in a world like this? How is it that the church can give something different, hopeful, positive, good, into a world as divided, a landscape as divided uh, as the one we live in. It's interesting that this occurs in chapter 13. You see, chapters 12 to 16 are, in one sense, the whole point of Paul writing the letter. I think you've probably been picking up on this. He spends 11 chapters unpacking the glorious gospel in all its various dimensions so that when he gets down to talking to the church in Rome, he says, right, now, this is how you are to be the church. This is the kind of community you have been called to, Christians. And that makes sense when they've understood what the gospel is and how life-changing it is, that it actually will change them and shape them into this awesome, radical new community, this gospel community with a vision, a mission, and a purpose. But what struck me as I was preparing this week is part of that is a particular relationship to the state, to the government. I don't know too many church vision statements out there that actually have a section on this is how, as a church, we're going to relate to the government. Uh, And yet when Paul writes to the Roman church, part of what he wants them to do in response to the gospel is adopt a particular attitude toward the state towards the government. And we're going to see what that is. And hopefully, we'll see it's a breath of fresh air for our world today. Uh, It's a a bit of sanity 
breathed into a, a, what often feels like a politically insane climate at times. Hopefully we'll find it encouraging and positive and a good thing to listen to. Now, I am aware as well that when we talk about issues like this, there is a massive temptation in each of us to play the yes, but game. Okay? So we're going to listen to what Paul says, but then we're going to want to go, ah, yeah, but what about this situation? Yeah, but what about that situation? Can I ask us all, just in the short term, just for the time being, I am going to hopefully get onto that, but can we all just leave that question to one side for a moment so that we focus on what Paul actually says first and see the good, positive vision that it is? And I think there are two main points I'm, I'm going to make this morning. And the first one is, is this. Paul's first point is live as a gospel community subject to human law. Live as a gospel community subject to human law. There is one very clear, simple command in verse 1. Uh, after the one command, we're going to get two reasons in verses 2 to 4 why we should obey the command. And then we're going to get a summary in verse 5. So if you doze off at any point, just verse 5. That's, that's the summary. That'll give you the, the, the bare bones of it. The command is simple, isn't it? Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. That is to say, when the church and when Christians relate to the state, the primary way we relate is, is an attitude of humility, an attitude of submission, of not making waves of doing what we're told by the government that's been put in place. That's Paul's point, isn't it, in verse 1? Be subject. Uh, Now, just a a, a word there. Uh, The Bible actually says the Son of God himself is subject uh, to God the Father. It's not demeaning or or in any way insulting to to be in a position of being submissive to a, a higher authority. It's not denigrating us. It's not saying we're, we're less important or not equal in any way, shape, or form. It's just part of God's good order of the way he's run the world. He puts certain people in political charge. And it's part of the good ordering of the world that those of us who are underneath political governing authorities obey them, respect them. Uh, and that's the first reason of the two reasons, actually, that Paul gives to obey this command. Did you see that? The authorities that exist, verse 1, have been established by God. It's part of the good way in which God orders the world that he gives us government. It is good to be governed. It is good to be governed. In all the political chat that goes back and forth in our world today, we can miss that point very often. And I know people have strong opinions about all sorts of issues... But actually, do you ever just stop and thank God that you live in a country that is governed? I know people complain that this is, uh, you know, a a terrible time for government, terrible time for politics, what anarchy we live in. My guess is lots of those people have never actually lived in a real anarchy. There are an awful lot of places in the world today and an awful lot of places throughout history that have really experienced anarchy where there is no government, no rule of law, no nothing. And if we'd experienced that, maybe we'd be a little quicker to see Paul's point here. It is good 
to be governed. It's part of God's good order. A little further down in verse 4, the one in authority is God's servant for your good. And so part of respecting that God has set this world up with good order is obeying those in authority. That's the first thing Paul says. God's got, God has put government in place. It's part of his order. The second reason is uh, part of the role of government is to punish wrongdoers. Uh, the end of verse 4, if you do wrong, be afraid. Rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And again, Paul is saying there, it's part of order, but it's saying that you don't want to live in a world where, where there are bandits roaming the streets, where wicked and immoral people can, can go around doing whatever they want with no consequences. That's bad for everybody. So God has given government to be something to, to restrain that hold that at bay. And that's another reason why Christians should obey those in government, those in authority. Because we don't want to be those who are wrongdoers. We don't want to um, demean the gospel in the eyes of society by being thought of as those who do wrong or those who do wicked. And so, by and large, we just obey the government and get on serving our neighbor, serving our community, and being subject. Uh, Live as a gospel community Uh, subject to God's law. And then Paul goes on to uh, apply it. This is why you pay taxes. Oh, sorry, let's do the summary in verse 5. I did say that was the summary, didn't I? Let's read that. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, same command repeated. Again, the two reasons are there. Not only because of possible punishment, so submit to them so you don't get punished, which is A, unpleasant for you, uh, and B, doesn't look good in the eyes of the world that Christians are troublemakers who deserve punishment. That's reason number one. And two, as a matter of conscience. In other words, we need to respect that God is a good God who set up a good order, and therefore we should obey the government because it's part of his good order. To disobey the government is to rebel against God, actually, in verse 2. And then he goes on to apply it. So so what does this really mean when we get down to it? Well, for Paul and the Roman church, uh, they pay taxes in verse um, 6. Then in verse 7, they give what they owe. That's probably some sort of excise duty on goods that are being brought in. Um, uh, And if you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. You do what is required of you by the government. So let's apply that to us. Um, safeguarding. Safeguarding. Now, I don't know what enters your heart and mind when you hear the word safeguarding. Maybe you think, oh no, not another meeting. I already have enough of those. Maybe you think, oh no, not another DBS form. I've already filled in 23. I don't know what you think. I can feel like that right there with you. But safeguarding is something the government's brought in to keep people safe. That is not objectionable. That should be something we all care about. So I accept and agree and understand and can be right there with you feeling that it is time-consuming. But if we're going to be subject to the authorities, then as a church, we need to make sure we do that to the letter. We do what is required of us by the government because it is good. It's part of keeping people safe and keeping good order. And actually, we should do it gladly. 
I know I can be guilty of complaining. But we shouldn't. We should remember this is part of God's good order and good plan for us. Of course, it also means pay taxes. It means the same for us as it meant for them. Of course it means that. Pay what we, we owe. But here's one which I found really quite personally challenging and difficult this week. It says pay respect to those worthy of respect. And it means those who hold office. And I think this is even more challenging in a democracy than it would have been in the first century. Part of living in a democracy means that we have the right to express our opinions, and we should use that right. We should uh, um, be part of the democratic process. Of course we should. We should air our opinions. But we should do it with respect. And I'm sure I've been guilty, and I I know I've seen others be guilty, even, even fellow Christians, I think sometimes of just overstepping the line. I know why we do it. It's out of frustration. It's out of all sorts of different things, but, but I know I've been guilty. And so I want to make a, a, a commitment to God and to pray for his help now to improve in this. And I thought about one practical way that I could improve. You see, so I've been struck by how easy it is to be quite dismissive of our elected leaders by referring to them simply by a surname. You know, almost treating them as a school child. Blair, Brown, Cameron, May. And almost as I say that, I'm denigrating them in my own heart. That might not be your issue. But but I think one of the ways I'm going to try and put this into practice is from now on, I'm going to try and refer to them as Mr. Blair, Mrs. May, or the Prime Minister, or the Leader of the Opposition, or whatever it is, to remind myself they've been put there by God for my good, And they are worthy of respect, even when I disagree with them. Even when I disagree with them. And I'm allowed to disagree with them, and we do live in a democracy. But I do so with respect. Now, what about the whatabouts? Because that's the great general principle, isn't it? But you're like, hang on, Tim. What about if you lived in... Nazi Germany, that often tends to be the one that comes out. What about if you live in this situation, that situation? Well, I think Paul's argument gives us part of the answer, doesn't it? That what we're seeing here is we obey the government because they've been put there by God. They are subject themselves to a higher authority. They're not the final authority. And so, of course, there are occasions where a government will do or say things that contradict what God has said... And on those occasions, it is right to stand up and say, no, we will not do that. There are even biblical examples, aren't there? Think of Daniel, commanded to worship a statue, an idol, and he stands up and he says, no. He will obey his king, Nebuchadnezzar, so far. But where it comes to a conflict between what Nebuchadnezzar says and what God says, he must say no to Nebuchadnezzar. So there are limits to the authority of the government. There are limits to what we should and shouldn't do and how far we should obey. But an interesting little side note to that. Paul is writing this letter under the reign of the Emperor Nero. Now, if you read much about Nero, he was not the most pleasant man in the world and committed some appalling acts. And yet, even under his government, Paul can write this. And as I reflected on that, it gave me pause. 
that maybe those red lines, those boundaries over which a Christian cannot go, maybe they're just that little bit further away than I'd like to make them. Maybe the attitude of submission stretches a little further than my natural heart wants to let it. Maybe. I was reading one commentator this week who put it like this, and I think this is really helpful as well. As Christians and as a church, if we ever have to stand up and say no, that no will be heard much more loudly, clearly, and effectively if we're willing and eager to keep doing our yeses. So all the ways in which we're willing to obey the government and willing to say, yes, we want to be good citizens who who are harmonious and create order, all the ways we keep doing our duties rightly, then when we actually stand up and say, no, actually, that's a line we can't cross, that will make people sit up and take notice because that will be unusual. Well, we are to live as a gospel community subject to human law. I've put this up here, and what I mean by this, gospel power is not political power. You see, what I find refreshing about Paul here is he's saying, look, you're a church. You have a gospel vision and a gospel mission. He's going to get on to that. Don't get sidetracked. Now, that's not to say, of course, individual Christians absolutely can get out there and get involved in the political scene, but the church is not to be a political lobby group. The church has to be a place that anyone can come, whatever way they vote, whether they leave or remain. It has to be a place that everyone is welcome to. Don't get so sidetracked by politics that people get excluded. And don't be obsessed by gaining political power. When the church has been most effective in history, it's basically been those times where Christians have not been in power. So here's a book by a guy called Rodney Stark called The Triumph of Christianity. charts the first three centuries. And he points out that in those first three centuries, Christians were not powerful. They were not uh, in high office or anything like that. And yet in 300 years, they absolutely revolutionized the world, the way everyone thought um, uh, and all sorts of things. You can see something similar starting to happen in China over the last 50 or 60 years. The Christians in China are not politically powerful, and yet there is a movement sweeping through that place. And interestingly, when the church has found itself grasping onto positions of power, that's when it's tended not to be as effective. There's a story told, and I will tell it because it's quite funny. Um, it's probably not true, by the way, but it's an anecdote uh, of this guy. Thomas Aquinas once went to visit the uh, Vatican to see the, the Pope. Uh, and as he went there in the Middle Ages, at the height of its political power, the Pope was there counting out silver and gold onto the table. And he turns around and he says, You see, Brother Thomas, no longer can the church say, Silver and gold have I none. And Thomas is supposed to have replied, Maybe so, Holy Father but neither can it say, get up and walk. Um, as I say, almost certainly not true, but it makes a, an interesting point, which is worldly and earthly power is not what the church should be striving for, because there's a deeper power, a gospel power, that can transform lives, communities, and the entire world. And so Paul says, live as a gospel community subject to human law. Secondly, and more briefly, love as a gospel community shaped by God's law. That's the second half of the passage. So verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding. So you used to pay everything you, you owe, which is what he's just said, except there's one debt that's always outstanding. 
the continuing debt to love one another. What Paul's saying there is you, you can never pay off that debt. So say I get up one morning and I say, I'm really going to love my brothers and sisters at church. I'm going to go out of my way to serve them, da, 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 do everything in my power to do that. And I go to bed satisfied that I've had a good old go at it. Next day, that debt's not paid off. I owe it to you again. And you owe it to me again. The debt of love that shapes our community. And the love is the fulfillment of the law, which is what verses 9 and 10 are about. All the commands God gives in the Old Testament, uh, basically just one command. Love. Love one another. And this is what love looks like. It's not committing adultery. It's not stealing. It's not murdering or coveting. Let's honor and respect one another. Because with love at the heart of a community, you can create the kind of community that the world out there is longing for, is desperate for. If we put our effort and energy not into politics, in terms of not into gaining political office or gaining political power, but our love and our energy, our energy into love and service, we will create the kind of gospel community um, that Paul uh, wants us Uh, to uh, become and that will commend the gospel so verses 8 to 10 talk about our present duties that debt that's always outstanding every new day every new morning we owe it to one another Uh, so love shapes our community in the present and secondly there's the future destiny of love Verses 11 to 14, and I'm sorry, I don't really have time to go into this as as much as I'd like. But the point in verses 11 to 14 is this. Do this, love, understanding the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. What Paul's saying there is, be what you will become. Be what you will become. You are one day going to live as a Christian believer in a world of love. In a world where everyone loves one another perfectly. Where that debt is always being paid to one another. You're going to live in a future so glorious and wonderful. A community so beautiful that if, you could, if we could even see it now. If we could even grasp it now, it would start to melt our hearts. And so Paul says, why don't you be an echo of it? Why don't you be a, a, a foretaste, a picture of what it's going to become. Be what you're going to become. Love in a way that will shape your community to, to be a foretaste of the new creation and the heavenly community. And that means putting aside the deeds of darkness, putting on the armor of light, verse 12, behaving decently in the daytime. This is a great question to ask before you do something. Is this an action that will belong in the new creation? Is this an action I think I'll be doing in in heaven? Is this an action I want to be doing surrounding Jesus' throne? It's a great question. If it's not, then why do I want to do it now? Because I want to be what I'm going to become. It's a good question to ask. Will it be fitting to live like this in the new creation? 
And so verse 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. What a picture. When you put on clothes, it's it's to display yourself in a particular way uh, to the world. I was at a wedding yesterday here. Uh, You know, people put on particular clothes at a wedding to mark out who who they are in the ceremony and all the rest of it. They, They make a statement with their clothing. Put on something that will make a visible difference, that will show itself loud and clear to the world. Christians, church, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make a visible difference. If he was writing today, maybe, maybe Paul would say, uh, apply your Jesus filter. Uh, I was going to show these pictures, just completely gratuitous. This is my niece. Uh, she's very cute. Uh, and, uh, but her mother decided that that was quite a fun thing to do to her. My, you know, makes a visible difference, doesn't it? Um, what do people see when they look at us? I'll try and remove that now so that we don't get too distracted. What do they see when they look at us? Do they see a community shaped by the love that would sacrifice itself for us and that we would love one another in that way too? That's what Jesus said. This is how people will know you're my disciples, if you love one another. And greater love has no one than this. They give up their lives for one another. Is our love radical? Does it display who we're becoming? Does it, does it present a community that people are out there saying, I want to belong to that? I'm not sure I believe it, but I want to belong. Friends, in the final analysis, uh, the, the way we don't grasp after political power in the here and now just speaks of the fact that we believe in a world to come, a world shaped by love. The the way we live here and now just speaks of where our hope really is. And so the challenge of this passage, I think, is for us to live that out. And I think if we do, and the way we speak about our leaders and the way we speak to one another, I think in the final analysis could commend the gospel as much as anything in this divided world in this world where bitterness and hostility seem to be all around us. What a difference the gospel could make. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word speaks to all areas of life. We pray for us now as we've heard from that word. Uh, Whatever has been unhelpful from me, let that fall aside. But as I've been explaining your words and the truths you want us to hear as a church here, may that take deep roots and grow into full flower. And may you be shaping us through this series into the community you would have us to be. And may it glorify and honor you as we live lives of love, shaped by your word, shaped by your law. And may others see it and be drawn to the glory and goodness of the gospel, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.